0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated.
1: Everyone is precious too, and you're Mikey.
2: Episode one hundred and eighty-six of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Laurie Norris, and with me today are Katie Grubbs and Alexis Neal. Hello, Katie and Alexis. Let's introduce hey. ourselves. <laughs> Sorry, I'm on a roll tonight. I had my cup of tea, and I'm just feeling um, real zoomy and a little bit loose and crazy. So, listeners, you're in for you're in for a treat. Uh, Katie, why, why don't you actually start us off?
0: Okay. <laughs> I'm Katie Grubbs. I live in Leeds, Alabama with my husband, David Grubbs, at the Christian Humanist Podcast and our four children. Um, I am adjunct professor of English for Houston Christian University, and uh, I've been teaching online for them since 2017. So my university's in Houston. I live here in Alabama, and it all works out nice. So that's, that's my life.
2: Lovely. Thank you. Alexis, introduce yourself.
1: Hello, I'm Alexis Neal. I live in Southern Missouri with my husband, Coyle Neal, of the City of Man podcast, the Christian Humanist Radio Network uh, political podcast. Um, And I mostly spend my time at home with my two boys. I'm a homeschool mom. Uh, stay-at-home mom, but I'm also an elected official for our rural community so I also get to wrestle with budget and personnel decisions and uh, small-scale less partisan but still fairly heated political drama so uh, that's that's how I'm spending my time these days. What about you, Lori?
2: I, thank you, am not as exhausted as y'all because I mostly just hang out with my new cat, Lando Norris. She's real pretty and she's right behind me. Um, and her ears twitch every time I speak and otherwise I pretend to be an office manager at the University of Georgia I also pretend to be a graduate student maybe one day I'll finish my dissertation I don't know, I've been working on it since 2015 what? It's not. I don't have a problem you have a problem
0: anyway <sighs> Lori, long dissertations are the best dissertations well, don't ask yourself I took so long on mine too you do you, man I've taken so long that
2: my major professor has actually left the institution. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It's all right. It's fine.
0: Everything's fine. <sighs> you know, it you know really what really fine? Let's it is, move it on. Is, well, and it is fine because the Mystery Gang is together again, right? Uh, I love the
2: Mystery Gang. The Mystery Gang is legitimately a highlight of my of my day, of my year, whenever we get together and talk about all of these cozy little weirdos. It just makes me so happy. Um, and distractible. Sorry, I looked at my cat again. That's, this is a problem. I have to face a computer instead of, instead of her. She's so cute. Alexis, um, because I am a trash fire right now, why don't you start us off with some information about what this episode is about?
1: I would love to. Thank you, Laurie. And say hi to Lando for me. Hi Lando. So today we're going to be talking about the 2022 comedy mystery film See How They Run. This film revolves around Agatha Christie's famous play, The Mousetrap, and the potential film adaptation thereof. More properly, uh, it, it revolves around those involved in the stage production and those involved in the potential adaptation of that stage production as a feature film. There is a murder. There are no fewer than two plays within the play, or again, more properly, a play and a film within the film. Um, There was an investigation. There are, of course, multiple suspects. Our film takes place in the 1950s. Agatha Christie's famous play, The Mousetrap, which is in negotiations to be developed into a feature film, has just celebrated its 100th performance. After the festivities, womanizing American and would-be director of the film adaptation played by Adrian Brody, is found dead on stage. The case is investigated by the dynamic duo of an eager rookie police officer, Saoirse Ronan, and seasoned detective, Sam Rockwell, her reluctant mentor. Our suspects include the play's producer, played by Ruth Wilson, uh, the would-be screenwriter, David Oyelowo, the would-be producer of the film, and the play's lead actor, we later in the film also meet uh, the dame herself, Agatha Christie, portrayed by Shirley Henderson, who many of us would know and love as Moaning Myrtle from Harry Potter. Um, and we also meet her husband, Max, played by Lucian Mismati, who we are, in the Mystery Gang know and love as Ra Manticoni in the number one ladies detective agency, which we talked about just a little while back. Um, And actually Oyelowo also made an appearance in that series, so this was kind of a fun reunion for us, even though those actors were not actually ever on screen together for either production. Anyway, it's a pretty solid cast all around, as you can see, and that's our setup. Our detectives investigate, shenanigans ensue. Before we continue, though, a bit of background about that show within the show, uh, The Mousetrap. It is a real play. Christie wrote it initially as a radio drama broadcast in 1947. It was subsequently adapted into a play which opened in London's West End in 1952. The original title was Three Blind Mice, a reference to the nursery rhyme that makes an appearance in the play. Uh, This is not the first or last time Christie would incorporate nursery rhymes into her fiction. Um, However, there had been another West End production by that same name. So before the play opened on the, on the West End, the title was changed to The Mousetrap, which happens to also be the title of the play within a play in Hamlet, which is why uh, Christy liked it. Uh, so See How They Run, then its title, is also a reference to that same nursery rhyme, Three Blind Mice. The play is, no surprise, coming from Christie. a mystery. It takes place at a country guest house where an assortment of individuals with no apparent connection to one another find themselves trapped by a snowstorm. The mystery revolves around the murder of a woman who had been imprisoned for abusing her foster children years earlier, one of whom had died as a result. It is thought that the murderer might be a surviving sibling out for revenge. Who might that sibling be? One of the proprietors of the guest house? One of the guests? Which one? The play famously ends with an admonition that the audience not give away the ending and ruin the mystery for future audiences, so we won't spoil it here. I should also note that Christie's play is based on a real-life tragedy involving the death of a child at the hands of his foster parents, Um, so there is a real-life component behind the play, which becomes relevant to the film as well. As the film suggests, the mousetrap is notable for its longevity. It has run continuously from 1952 to the present, with a 14-month break due to COVID. It is closing in on 29,000 performances, if it's not there already, making it the longest-running West End show and the longest-running play in the world. It has been produced in some other countries as well, most notably including a 26-year run in Toronto, and it is um, going to be making its Broadway debut later this year. The film also accurately relates another interesting detail. The contract for the film rights specified that no film could be made until six months after the end of the show's run on the West End. As a result, no film adaptation has yet been made. Whether the temporary closure in 2020 due to COVID will open the door to future adaptations remains to be seen. Film also includes as characters some of the original actors. Uh, so Richard Attenborough and Sheila Sim um, were the original actors in the uh, production on the West End. And so we have add them as characters in the film, not the actors themselves, but other actors playing real-life actors, uh, Richard Attenborough and Sheila Sim, as well as real-life Hollywood producer John Wolfe, who purchased the film rights to The Mousetrap. And who, as the film repeatedly tells us, also produced the African Queen. And we also see his wife and mistress, um, real car- real people um, as well. And we see the appearances from Christy and her husband. So a number of real historical figures who make their appearance in the film. And with that, we're going to transition. I'm curious, ladies, um, about your initial res- uh, responses and reactions to the film. And whether you've had any experience reading or seeing a, pr- um, a production of The Mousetrap.
0: Um, I, I haven't read or seen the play The Mousetrap, though this whole experience and thinking about the play and the movie, and, you know, based on a real-life case. Like, all of this also made me think back to when we talked about Trifles, which was a one-act play based on a real-life case that was also, there was also a short story version. So um, I I was kind of getting flashbacks to Trifles. Um, I love the movie. I I really enjoyed it a lot. I, for various reasons, it was a lot of fun to see the kind of, um, all the metadramatic aspects, but also to see it, kind of giving uh, one view, a a rather silly view, of that kind of classic Golden Age style mystery. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. And it also reminded me of another film that I'm going to talk about that way, way, way later when we talk about recommendations um, passing on tonight. Um, But I I thought it was great, and I'm keen to talk about it for the rest of this evening.
2: Yeah, I'm kind of like Katie... Not only did I enjoy the film, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was really entertaining. It's, it's not, it's kind of slight, you know, um, but it does some really fun things with its self-reflexive approach to adaptation. Yeah. Um, Also, Sam Rockwell's amazing, whatever he does, even if his accent is inconsistent here. He's fabulous. So I I was
1: like it was not a good bless his heart and I love him so much. But boy, I was like, he he's not he's he's struggling struggling a little
2: bit. Yeah, like when he says the word murder, I I can't even pretend to do it as poorly as he did. And so it just it it was it was it became charming for for me when every now and then this British um,
0: inspector would have a Texas accent. It was, do you, do you think, well, and I don't know if it helped or hurt that he was supposed to be drunk a lot of the time, because that was the other confusing thing about that, though, is sometimes he was, like, the accent was wobbling, and sometimes he was just, like, slurring. Yeah. So it was, it was tough to
2: tell. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say it was an intentional choice, because I, I love the, the guy, he's a, he's a phenomenal actor, and he straddles that line between pathos and comedy so beautifully, But for the play itself, before I saw the movie, all I really knew about the play was that it had been running forever and that there was controversy about whether or not Christie stole the story from real life. Um, Because uh, how very dare anybody base anything on a true story. So I was kind of prepared for the storyline of the movie, even though I didn't know the storyline of the play, if that makes sense.
1: I, uh, it does make sense. I, so I actually have seen the play, I'm <gasps> fairly certain, because my high school senior trip was to Toronto. And we, I, I, this is, I think, the play that we went to see. The fact that I'm saying I, I think we went to see obviously tells you how well I remember. <laughs> That experience. I remember it was an Agatha Christie play, and it was in Toronto. And I, it, it, I'm like 95% sure this is the play that we saw. However, I don't have a specific memory of it, other than when I was looking over the synopsis, I was like, oh yeah, that does sound like that sounds familiar. So I, I, I saw it in Toronto. One of the during that 26 year run that it was in Toronto. Um, so yay. Don't super remember it a lot. So you could have sold me on anyone being the murderer in the play, and I probably would have believed it. But. Um, and i also enjoyed the film i in addition to struggling with sam rockwell's accent as it was i actually i have a hard time with sam rockwell because i've seen him in things where he is just so big yes. and so manic that i am always sad if it is at all a subtle or subdued performance and this was a more subdued character he was not as sam rockwelly as sam rockwellian sam rockwellian as yes. i want him to be when i see him because he's so deliciously crazy in so many roles. Uh, so i struggled because i kept waiting for him to be to... Zaphod Beeblebrox? Yes, or or whatever the bad guy is in Charlie's Angels. I forget what his name was in that. Oh, or
0: man, I, uh, I forgot about that. <laughs> or or
1: even the whatever the one was that was a Confessions of a Dangerous Mind where he oh, was that crazy so I get, so like I'm used to seeing him. And so it's Which is not to say that he didn't do it well It was just it's you know I have expectations When I see his name attached to a film And so it was a little bit Uh of a struggle I, I, I kept I told my husband I was like I kind of wonder if it would have been Easier for me if he had been the Film director who had been murdered Because that's more of the like Big Crazy character that I expect from him But um but Adrian Brody also did a really good job in that, like, sleazy director kind of way. So um, anyway, so that was my only, like, but that was me. That's not necessarily a problem with his performance. It was just me expecting the the bigness of the character to come through. And it's just not that he's kind of a schlubby, you know, unmotivated detective guy.
0: He's a sad sack.
1: He is also that. So
0: um, you can see that a lot, too. I, I kept thinking when I was watching, you can see that in his wardrobe. Like, all of his clothes seem like they're too big for him. Like, and I don't know if this, if the suggestion is that he's so miserable that he's, like, lost weight. Or if he just doesn't care what he looks like, so he's, like, buying his clothes secondhand. But the whole time I was looking at him and I'm thinking, because a lot of the other men in the in the movie have very well tailored clothes. Um, but all of his stuff looks like it's, like, his pants look like they were three inches too long. Like, it's, he's got, like, these layers of coats and vests that make him look bigger than he really is. Like, and he's just, and, yeah, he's just very, very schlub. Very schlubby compared to a lot of the other men, and I know I'm pretty sure I'm sure that was intentional. But I was, I'm not sure if they're trying to suggest that he's a person who doesn't care about fashion, or if he's if he's a person who's so miserable that he just puts on the same clothes every day. I don't, I'm not sure about that. Okay.
2: Um, that's a brilliant observation, Detective Katie. Thanks. Can, <laughs> I always notice costume. Can we circle back around to that in a minute because that's kind of I think we need to talk about a slightly bigger picture because that. It's
0: like very specific.
2: Jumping to conclusions? Yeah.
0: Um yeah, oh let me yeah, this is <laughs> nice, <conclusion>. Laurie. <laughs> nice
2: um,
0: I will say one other thing about relevant experience before we move to the next bit. I I have never seen this play, but what I have seen and is and what is kind of tangentially referenced in this movie is The Real Inspector Hound by Tom Stoppard. <gasps> Which is a t- which spoofs the Mousetrap. <laughs> so um, they did that play at Central Christian, at our little tiny Christian College in Kansas, and it was it was awesome. I wish I could see that again now, having seen this movie, and even more, I wish I could see the Mousetrap and then see the real Inspector Hound. But that's why he's Inspector Stoppard. Yeah, right. the movie. Yeah, is because of Tom Stoppard. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, so um, when I said
2: uh, uh, audience. Um, jump to conclusions. That is a direct reference to the movie. So there will be some references to the movies uh, here. So I'm going to have to give a little bit of a spoiler alert, um, but the film is set up in kind of a way that the s- the the who done it of it all isn't really the point of it all, and that that brings me to a conversation that I want us to have about the nature of this movie as pastiche or parody. Um, There are a lot of points in the film where it's paying really reverent homage to the genre that that Christie was working in, but then there are also points where it skewers really, really harshly. So I'm going to ask y'all, listeners at home, follow along, but uh, what elements of the film do you think were there to honor Christie's work and which do you think were there to satirize her work?
0: Any thoughts? I, I think that, um, a couple, well, a couple of things. I, I think all the kind of, and we're going to talk about specific ones later. I think all the kind of little Easter eggs and things are there as points of honor because it's, it's a way of showing familiarity with her texts and, you know, um, and a lot of it's in like names and things like that, like little kind of scanty references. But I think that the um, I think that Constable Stalker is a really nice homage to. There are a lot of plucky young women in Agatha Christie stories, and and, and the young woman is, is usually not ever the main detective. Um, and we always, we tend to think about Miss Marple or Poirot or whoever the main detective is, but often in a lot of those stories, there'll be a plucky young lady who is helping out um, or, like, um, well, I mean, Tuppence Beresford is, like, she's, like, half, right, of a pair. Um, but then I read recently, I have, for the first time, I read the Citiford mystery, um, sometimes called Murder Out in Hazelmore. Mm. Um, and there's a plucky young lady who's trying to help solve the crime because her fiancé is the accused guy. Um, like, and so I think that type of character, the young, the bright young woman who's, you know, got a lot of heart, and, you know, is is trying hard. And um, I think that that is a a, a nice little homage to a particular type of Christie character that doesn't necessarily always get a lot of attention because there's a lot of those characters in her stories, but because they're never the main detective, a lot of times in film adaptations and things, they don't always, they kind of get short shrift.
2: Alexis, do you think that some of the other characters are individual homages or say like the way that... Um, Dickie Attenborough becomes kind of a source of comedy. Is that more satire of the character? as, Or is that playing an homage? Because a lot of Christie's usual suspects are self-involved doofuses too, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, he feels more like he could be straight-lifted out of a Christie- book uh so maybe there's something going on there that i missed but to, to me he felt more like a Christie character and i will say I mean, we were mentioning sam rockwell's accent i could not tell you what it was but i loved the way that that actor the accent that he used for that character it was really it was just slightly different um than what i was expecting but it was it really drew focus and it was It was just a really interesting choice. I don't know enough about accents to know if that's uh, a deliberate homage to Richard Attenborough's actual accent, um, uh, especially in his youth, or if that's a common theater type of accent, or if it's just the actor's accent. Normally, I don't know, but it was a little bit different, and I really liked it. But his character, the way that he was... um, I mean, it reminds me, there's a... When we did Miss Marple, right? There's the young her, like, young nephew or whatever, who's a writer or an actor or something. Like, he felt like that guy good-natured, I mean, he's very friendly, says he'll get tickets for for, uh, Stalker, does get tickets for Stalker, like, he doesn't seem to be, um, he just seems seems like a likable enough guy, and, um, yeah, reminded me a lot of of someone like Marple's nephew, so I I didn't see as much parody in him um, as I did maybe in some of the other Places, but I'm not even sure how many of the characters felt like parodies so much as some of the um, the ways that the the events unfolded or the ways that they would talk about those events.
2: Okay, so like maybe the parody, the the homage is all of the characterization, but the parody is the structure of the film. I'm per, I'm thinking particularly of the way that. Audiences are introduced to the film within the film of it all. Sure. So, listeners, there is a an extended scene in this in the in the movie. This is going to get difficult to talk about because there's in the movie of the movie of the movie of the movie. Um. So, not Colin Kaepernick. Leo Kaepernick. The the director objects to the original ending of the adaptation of the play being written by David Olu- Oluwoyo's character and and says that he has storyboarded a new ending, and then s- proceeds to show audio- <sighs> proceeds to show the the screenwriter and the producer, these images he's drawn, that just happen to also be storyboard of what will be the ending of the movie See How They Run that we are currently watching that also features drawings of the characters who would be in those scenes. So it's an interesting sort of flashback, flash forward, very meta moment. It seems to be trying to undercut the expectations this sort of cliched expectation of what an Agatha Christie murder mystery is, but does it actually undercut? Is it really a subversion what happens in Copernicus' version and at the end of See How They Run? Yeah, I think I kept those threads straight in my head. What do you guys think? Is the ending of this movie A subversion or a reification of Agatha Christie' denouement.
1: I don't think it's very much like the ending at all. I mean, I don't. It's much too actiony. You've got a lot more of the characters being in peril. Um, uh, You know, there's it's big, right? The 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 idea is he, the American director, wants to come in and Americanize this this film and make it a big, splashy American action ending, like you would expect in more of a, a hard-boiled detective or action film. Um, and so um, that... And the detective is basically roundly... Um, re- his version is roundly rejected by the other participants who, understandably, want to adapt an Agatha Christie story. And so he is suggesting um changes that would that would fundamentally alter the nature of it as an Agatha Christie story and so they they're not interested at all in that but then of course it comes back around and the the story that he was saying wouldn't this be a great story and you know becomes the story that we ourselves are watching um and it, and I think it works but but it's not you know you take the, those elements at the end and that's not like any Agatha Christie story I can remember reading I mean granted a lot of them are a little old lady who solves the puzzle in her house like she's not no one has to, like, jump in front of a bullet to save Miss Marple. That's not how <laughs> that sorry, works, you know. Or, or, you know, I mean, Poirot might occasionally be in danger, but it's just, it's not his physical presence. Um, many of her characters are minds primarily, and they solve with, with puzzles. One of the lines I really liked is when they're interviewing the screenwriter, and he's like, so you're going to go around and interview anybody, everybody, and then you're going to know who did it. Right, the idea being that, that that's all you need is to just talk to everybody and solve it. Well, because that's what Poirot would do, or that's what Miss Marple would do, because they're primarily minds. And the 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 denouement that uh, that Copernic is suggesting is one involving bodies, not minds. It's you know it is uh, not about uh, puzzling it out. It's about actually you know saving a life and and lots of big splashy action sequences. So um, I don't know. I don't know that it's trying to say that Christie's endings are bad because of that, but certainly it is saying that this is a different way to end a story than everybody standing around in the drawing room while the detective explains what happened.
0: It feels, it feels more American. Yeah. It, and I mean, I mean, and it's supposed to be an American guy who comes up with the storyboarded version, but it feels a lot more like something that would happen in a Nero Wolf story. You know, where you've yeah. got people with pistols and, you know, like, um, kind of having, having a shootout. Um, I remember, and it, it makes me think, too, a little bit, there was a really funny little kind of subversion moment um, of genre on Death in Paradise. One of the seasons of Death in Paradise, listeners, if you've seen that show, um, I think it maybe is their second detective when he shows up after the first guy um, isn't there anymore. No, I don't want to spoil it for y'all. But basically, the, his his kind of um, the cops who work for him gather all the suspects at the end of the mystery, and or he's gonna, you know, he's getting ready to end things, and they're like, "Don't you want us to get all the suspects?" And he's like, "Why? What? What's happening?" And they're like, this is what we do. This is what we do here." And he's like, oh, okay, And he just goes with it. So, you know, there's that like they give you that little moment where they acknowledge that this is really kind of weird and doesn't make sense. Why does everybody need to be here to have it all explained to them? And they just kind of like lampshade it like that. Um, So but and and I think it's interesting, too, because you get even before he suggests a different ending, though, from the very beginning, because he's doing that voiceover at the beginning of the movie. Where he's basically saying, if you've seen one of these, you've seen them all. The same thing happens every time. Like, from the very beginning, there's this, that subversion and that questioning of the format. Because he says it's always the same, you know. But what's not said is that back at least at the beginning of Christie's career of writing, that wasn't true because she hadn't been doing it. it people hadn't been doing it for as long, you know what I mean? It's, it, she kind of created that. And made it more tedious. So I don't know. I mean, well, I'll probably. I was going to say, would a person in the early 50s be saying, this is so old hat. This has been done a zillion times, blah, blah, blah. Maybe they would because she'd been writing Poirot stories since the 30s at that point. So maybe somebody would say that already okay. in the
1: 50s. Okay. That reminds me as well, um, with the, regarding the voiceover and his, you know, strong American accent voiceover makes me think of like a Bogart film. Do you think that the even the introduction? I'm trying to think if there would be a voiceover if if the voiceover itself is a genre shift anyway. Like like the mere presence of him as a voice. Certainly the voice of the victim. I don't know. I don't know when we start seeing that kind of thing pop up. But this American boy accent voiceover seems more like a, a Maltese Falcon or Big Sleep or something like that. Um, even though those are a much more serious tone to them. Like that in and of itself seems like maybe a signal that this is not going in the direction of Christie. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. Dashiell Hammett presents Agatha Christie's the mousetrap. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think that's legit. I would agree with that. So, okay. You, You both kind of touched on something that I think is interesting as a choice in the movie that seems to be the fulcrum around which this, um, Parody pastiche kind of idea. The the is it old fashioned? Is it updated thing? The 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 positioning of who is the detective? Christie doesn't really have professionals. Um, she has a lot of amateur sleuths, right? But the the detectives, the hero, the actual heroes, and they refer to them as such in the in the film, are both police officers. Uh, kind of. Did not not particularly respected police officers but they are they are cops so what do you what do you guys think that says about having professional detectives be the one who solves the crime around someone so known for Civilian detectives. I was gonna say amateur, but that is—you—you you can't say Marple and Poirot are amateurs. They're just civilians,
1: right? Poirot used to be a police officer in Bel—in Belgium.
2: Yeah, yeah, um, but he—but he's like, it's—it's it's not in his. I'm not getting paid to do like. only well, he's getting paid to do this so he can eat all those little pastries. But it's—he's it's, not on the job. You know, he's not a policeman anymore. He, right? He's like Charles Holmes.
1: He's a consulting detective. He's not, he's not, um, like you said, he's a civilian. I mean, I think it's interesting because I, I'd have to think back on exactly what the clues are that lead our detectives in the film to the solution. But I don't feel like it's supposed, it's not presented as, like, this stroke of genius, again, these cerebral thing out of all pieces and understanding completely what has happened. It feels more like kind of a lucky coincidence. Like, they're kind of plodding along, and Stalker is jumping at every single red herring, um, confident that, that that person is the killer. Every time she does an interview with someone, that person is the killer. And we don't really know what, if anything, Stoppard thinks is going on, because he seems mostly to me not thinking about anything at all except where to get his next drink so um it it, it, they solve it but they are not rock stars they are not geniuses they kind of seem to be going through the motions and sort of by virtue of being the police officers investigating find the killer um and so i don't know yeah. So in that sense, it 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 is the police solving it, but it's not because the police are the geniuses. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I Me? Mean, I'm sorry. I, now, I was just to say, I mean, this movie's so meta. Is that maybe an attempt to, to, to lay back, to basically to let the viewer kind of try to solve it on their own? I mean, with any mystery, in theory, the reader could always like that's one of the rules, right? Of detective fiction is that you're supposed to be able to figure it out. If you, you know, there's, you're, they're supposed to give you enough clues to be able to figure it out. And I was thinking about that, especially because, you know, when all the people get invited out to the country house at the end, and it looks like the tip's about to happen, you know, the we, the watchers, know almost immediately where they are and why they're there. But the cops don't. Like you guys were saying, there. So we, we've been kind of following the cops around, but suddenly we, we cease to follow the cops around, and now we're there where they've been at this place they've been invited to and have to try to puzzle out why they're there, what's happening, whatever, and the police aren't even there. So maybe it's also kind of turning the viewer into the the amateur, the civilian detective, right? Um, and then while well, the cops are also trying to do their thing and trying to solve it, which that happens too. In, and I, it's only on my brain so much because I literally read it like two weeks ago. In the Sidaford mystery, The the detective in the story is an inspector like he's a cop yeah um but like part way through this plucky young girl pops up and she wants to try to help because you know her fiance is accused or whatever so she teams up with this other guy that's like a journalist who's also like her age and they start trying to solve it together so that book gives you a a detective inspector and then also a pair of, of amateurs or civilians who are also trying to solve the crime and then at the end of the book you find out that also the whole time in town there's been, like, a retired Scotland Yard man. That was, like, jammed to the rafters with people who could solve crimes. It's a very strange book. Um, but, so, yeah, I don't know. That, that's my theory is maybe maybe the, maybe the viewer is being made into the, the civilian detective. I think, that's a, I think that's interesting,
2: and I want to complicate it a little bit because – there is a moment of genius, you know, like a Eureka thing, but it makes no sense. And it might be like the same kind of issue, Alexis, you have with Harris Dickinson's accent. It's like, can't place it. It sounds a little different. There is this moment where Stalker has a sudden realization who the actual killer is because she's talking to a witness and the witness says, oh, that pres- person with the funny accent. And Stalker says, oh, the Italian... No, not that kind of funny accent, more village idiot. And then, and then later you you hear the killer talking, like, you sound like
0: everyone else in the room. Yeah. Yeah, it was weird. I I thought that was strange, too. Yeah.
1: I was wondering, actually, if this passed because my husband and I were talking, he paused it partway through, and he's like, okay, so who do you think the killer is? Because when I watch, I don't even, I'm not even trying to solve. I'm just, I'm along for the ride. And even if I know who the killer is, I'm still surprised at the end. I'm, I'm like an ideal murder mystery audience. But he was asking who I thought it was and 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 whether or not, one of the things we talked about was whether they actually had given us all the pieces we needed to solve it. Like, that's Dorothy Sayers' big thing, right? Was it's cheating if there's information that anyone has that you don't have and that's what's necessary. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I knew who she was talking about just because there was only one person that could conceivably be construed that way as a character that we'd met and he'd been around a lot um but uh it didn't yeah i I don't feel like if you watched it back through you'd be like oh yeah there were clues here and here and here i mean they had a few things where like the person would hear and that would give them a motive so the conversation that that the killer has with the screenwriter that that is the motive for for the screenwriter's death and things like that but um but i didn't feel like there was a lot of it wasn't primarily a mystery in that sense it wasn't primarily a puzzle where there are all these different clues and we have to piece them all together um yeah so it's it wasn't it wasn't i don't know i don't I don't feel like it necessarily passed that kind of test of all of the clues were there for you to see and you could have figured out who the person was before the detectives did
2: yeah there was the movie seemed to have been really focused on selling the ultimate red herring by putting us in, in um, stalkers perspective where she finally yes. starts to tr- piece together clues instead of just jumping to conclusions. But she jumped to a conclusion, um, because she didn't have the final bit of information, the most crucial piece of information. Um, which I'm, I don't I so want to spoil cuz it's lovely but I'm not going to do that to you listeners cuz it is structurally part of the movie that kind of is is the mystery of the movie but I've watched it now 3 times to prepare for the, to prepare for this and also because it's entertaining um and I don't and like I know where the killer is and so physically in position to overhear various things and to feel the way this person feels, but we're never given the most crucial, crucial bit of evidence to explain why this person would be the killer, which I find very funny because in the, in the actual climax, when all of the, the cast of suspects have been lured to Agatha Christie's country home in the dead of night, uh, and a horrible snowstorm. It's absolutely setting up to be the end, where uh, Poirot or somebody walks in and says, um, "This is what happened, and I shall explain it all." Agatha Christie does that. Like Agatha, immediately knows who the who the killer is, and not because she watched the killer enter her home. Um, she does that, but we don't we don't ever get any justification for how she knew. So they, the movie lied to us. It's a lying
0: liar who lies. I have to say I love the gag where he thinks he's got Agatha, but he doesn't. That was oh. one of the funniest things in the entire movie. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of good kind of physical comedy or stuff in that movie, but I was done. It's <laughs> because <laughs> they make you think she's, like, dead in a carpet, and it's not even her. Hilarious.
2: Yes.
1: Yeah. I also love the part where she uh, she does dishes to solve her, to work out the mystery, like the um, her husband says that basically, like, doing the dishes helps her to figure out how to solve the mysteries in her books. Um, it was such a real detail, and I wish I could remember, having read her autobiography, if that she actually mentions that at any point, that that was a thing that she would do. It sounds like it could be true, because she was always puzzling away the back of her mind, and dishes are something you do, you know, with your hands, and not that part of your brain, and it, it would, it sounds very real, but I I, I loved, uh, I love that detail, and I love also her, her, um not even being remotely uh tempted to give up her work in order to save her own life like she's just not even that's not even when 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 that is part of the discussion of like well this needs to stop or you need to stop doing this um she's like oh no 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 that's not gonna like she just is very (laughs) she's not at all cowed um and and I, i really liked the portrayal um of her it was it was very charming and and idiosyncratic and uh yeah, I really, I really enjoyed that portrayal.
2: It even, even though um, uh, Agatha Christie is a stone cold killer. Yeah. There, there is, yeah. there is a So Agatha Christie, Shirley Henderson's Agatha Christie, stops an act of violence by hitting somebody over the head with a giant snow shovel, and instead of just moving on, you know, like ah yes, the cops will, will we're safe. Every the the violence has ended. They have this shot of Shirley Henderson, slowly, like a barbarian, raising the shovel above her head as if to slam it into the skull of the poor schmuck beneath Henderson's feet. And the shovel is as big as Shirley Henderson is. And it's, I I think that is an image that will live with me forever. And it's not, her husband comes out and says, "Oh, oh, no, 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 no. Like, he's had to do that before.
1: (laughs) She's also not at all troubled when she inadvertently causes another death. It's just sort of like, oh, whoops, oh, well, like, it's just.
2: (laughs) Oh, oh, I meant to kill someone, but just not you in particular. All right, moving on. Yeah, it's uh, the movie does become an open farce as soon as they arrive at Christie's mansion Um, and that tonal shift got me the first time I watched it, because it comes after the big red herring, oh, no, that was wrong. Oh, can we ever trust each other again kind of moment. Well, I make it sound a lot more melodramatic and, like, cheesy than it was. It was handled actually pretty well in the in the film. But it's a big shift. It's a big emotional shift from from leaving... Stalker and stoppered and going to oh we were invited to dinner and a cheeky butler says no you weren't about to shut the door on you like it. I was not prepared for Agatha Christie bloodthirsty killer, but I should have expected it given her butler. Well, and I was yeah that butler was a
1: great performance. I loved his reports, especially when they were he was being encouraged to try and overpower the uh the killer and he was just like nope nope not gonna he was yeah he was great he really drew focus and and yeah just was a lot a lot of screen presence
0: that silent exchange was really really funny well and i was about to say that the end goes very clue but clue is also a spoof of the same type of story so you know it's all the same (laughs) um it all kind of comes back to it. i Lori, i didn't even think about that until you said it about there being that really abrupt tonal shift but it That's a great observation. Because there's been these moments of absurdity all along. But then right at the end, it just gets more and more and more ridiculous. Uh, One thing I really liked about that that last scene, too, is the way that they kept showing you in different ways just how reclusive she's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So, like, her butler's like, well, there's no way you're invited to dinner. Um, The killer doesn't realize he's gotten the wrong person at first because he doesn't even really know what she looks like even though she's really famous. I thought that was interesting. Like, um, unless he's supposed to have grabbed her from behind or something, you know, I don't know, but they give you two or three or four different there's, they give you all these different reinforcements in that last scene that she's like super reclusive. Um, and I thought that was interesting, too, because, you know, the whole time we've been hearing about, you know, oh, she wrote this famous play that's going to be made into a famous movie with all these famous people. Like, they keep reinforcing her fame at the beginning of the movie, but you never see her. And then when you finally get to her home and you're you're like, oh, we're going to see her, they're like, well, she's a recluse. You know, it's just kind of it's kind of interesting. Yeah. I can't believe, too, that they made no reference in that movie that I can see to the, the whole deal in real life where she just, like, disappeared and took on an assumed name for a couple weeks. I can't believe yeah. they didn't mention that. Oh, the sequel. Right? It's like yeah. a flashback.
2: Yeah, but she she becomes like Bruce the, the Shark in Jaws. The less you see of her, the more important, the more powerful her impact, because... The first time watching it, I, and and then Shirley Henderson's face turns around, and and I was, I, I I didn't realize that she was in the movie. And I was like, what? Also, this is the only time I think Shirley Henderson has looked like anything other than a teenager.
0: Yeah, I know.
2: in her 40s when she was playing Moaning, Moaning Myrtle, right?
1: Yeah, late 30s, early 40s.
2: Yeah, she was. Yeah. And she has done up like old age makeup style in this in this movie. So I, I, I guess Henderson is contractually obligated to never look her age. It's a nice nice gig
0: if you can get it yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: I also like the the sort of light-hearted way that um, Masamti's character just diffuses everything. He's so gregarious and personable, and then the weird moment of like Mesopotamian aperitif that no one enjoys. Uh, it's 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 a complete. We're, we've left the movie that we've been watching for an hour and jumped into an entirely new world, and I think it's because the film is trying to recenter around. Christie's structure versus its own to, like, really, I don't know, rebalance what it, what it had been doing to prepare us for the big American ending with a car chase and explosions. Like, the slowest car chase in the world, and the explosion was a Molotov cocktail, but, and it was just really that one chest of drawers, so it'll be fine, but, it's, I, I feel like the, the tonal shift into farce is, I can't quite put my finger on why they, they did it, but it feels to me an intentional choice as a comment on Christy's structure. Does that make any kind of sense to
0: y'all? I mean, I yeah, I, I think it could. Well, and particularly if you think about, and it depends on, because there's Christie novels and then there's Christie novels, right? Some of yeah. them end on a, a higher note than others, but I do think it could be, it could be a, a, a kind of comment on. I'm thinking particularly of um, Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah. The ending, of, ending of which to me is really heavy. Um, like there are some of those, some of her novels, you know the big dramatic scene at the end's even more heavy than it sometimes is. And so this could have been an attempt to do the exact opposite thing. You know, we're going to end on an absurd note. Um, and, and I think that if that's what's happening, then that's kind of pointing towards some of those more kind of intense, heavy, heavier, heavier ends. Um but, I mean, I don't know, though, because it, it's, it's not just kind of inverting some of the typical Chrissy stuff, but it's also giving it a totally different feel, like a different type of story. Like, you know, it's not just undoing her. It's, it, it feels like a different type of story because it looks like the storyboard, and what he's describing is more like a totally different kind of story, more like something noir, you know. So it, it's also just kind of flipping it into an entirely different genre, you know, and also bringing it home to her house could also be another kind of type of subversion because one of the big ideas of this movie that, that they seem to really want you to think about is do we think it's ethical to, you know, make super popular money-making entertainment out of someone's personal tragedy? Like, you know what I mean? So oh, by- I hadn't it, have you made that connection. I didn't until it was coming out of my mouth. This is why I podcast because I have better ideas when I'm talking to <laughs> other people. Um, but you know, so they in the end it's brought home to her home. Now then her reaction to that is I'd do it again. Right? Like yeah. but I mean it's brought home in a very personal way into her home and you know, and the tragedy's like right up in her face. So I think that's part of it too.
1: Yeah, I was wondering about that when when you were talking, that idea of that tonal shift and if the idea of taking something more serious and making light of it is at all supposed to remind us of the accusation that she was making entertainment out of a very tragic story, um, even though I don't know that the tone, like the, the tone of the play Mousetrap, I don't think is particularly lighthearted, um, and it, it, you know, the, 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 the underlying story there is is a really really sad one. It would I don't think it would work um, well if it were a super lighthearted story, um, uh, particularly at that time. But but that contrast between it was a real tragedy and you turned it into entertainment. If that's at all relating to this is the story we were telling and now we're turning it into a farce.
2: I really like that reading. You, I think you guys have just answered for me that question that I had about why. Because it feels... It's so intentional. Like, it's... There are slapstick moments. Like you mentioned, there are slapstick moments. But nothing like the absolute farce that is... Like, literal farce as a genre that we get at the end. And I think you guys have nailed it. it. It is taking not only Christie's normal endings and flipping them to kind of draw attention through opposites to to making light of tragedy. Um, but but like it's also taking the the drama of that action ending and flipping it on its head to skewer the idea that the American version, which we've technically been watching, is somehow better. By re reminding us why we why we read Christie in the first place. And smushing them up and rubbing them together. And making its own thing, ooh, ooh, you guys are really smart.
0: <laughs> it's 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 the talking that that you know, because I didn't have like David didn't watch it with me, so I didn't have anybody to talk about it with while I was watching it. I was just kind of feverishly taking notes, and a lot of times I don't always because I'm a very marked extrovert. I don't always know what I think about something until I talk about it with somebody else. So I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying this because I'm, I'm kind of figuring out what I think about it as, as we're, we're working through it together. I really
2: like that we're working through it together and I'm enjoying it more. I hate it when you talk about a piece of art or something afterwards that at first you're like, yeah, I enjoyed it. And you talk about it with people and you're like, oh, 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 no, I don't like that anymore. And now I still like this. So thank you for that, too. You're welcome. <laughs> okay. So we are getting close to time, and I like my, um, my crown as the person who makes sure you come in under time. So uh, did anybody have any final thoughts about the movie before I move us on to a lightning round?
1: I'm ready for the lightning round.
0: Um, I, I, all I was going to say is I, the other thing I I thought that was really clever, and I don't even know what I would label this, but it's, um, well, two things. Thing one, and we don't have to talk about this. I just wanted to say it. It's really interesting to me. I super, super appreciated all the diverse casting in this movie, but it weirded me out a little bit more because some of these people were playing real people. I was so excited to see somebody, but when he opened the door and I realized he was supposed to be Max Malawan, a real person, her real life husband, I was like, "What? What's happened?" I was really confused for a minute because I didn't. It was. It, it was. It was a weird. It was weirder. I felt like when it was a, somebody who was a known real life person. Does that make sense? I, I don't. Yeah. Maybe it was just like because I love him so much. I was so pleased he was in the movie, and he was so funny. But I and and it, he wasn't the only one. Um, the lady. Um, but it, it was it was less obvious. Like the lady who played, um, Sheila Sim, uh-huh. um, Dickie's wife. Um, and you know, I mean that that particular actress is like like, Italian and Indian or something, you know, like, um, so, I mean, there were definitely other people who were real people who were being played by somebody who didn't look exactly like that person, but um, it it just, it threw me off a little bit, because I, I don't know that I've seen something before um, where I was watching people who were supposed to be real people pulled from real life, but they look different, but that, I mean, to be honest, that could be another commentary, and that could be another layer of, you know, another layer of like meta narrative or artificiality, or it, it it could be another thing that they're doing on purpose to show the the artifice of all of it, is yeah. by taking, you know, taking it's it's inspired by real thing, right? Inspired by true events or whatever. Taking real people and casting someone who doesn't look anything like that person. Maybe that was another really intentional choice, and that didn't occur to me until right now either. I um, I buy it. Um, the other thing I was just going to say is I really like some of the parts where you would have, like, a drawn-out moment of something being awkward, like, the way that everybody kept falling into that one really deep couch um, <laughs> at at the screenwriter's house. Or um, the whole extended scene of people chasing each other through hallways and opening doors and just missing each other, that was really funny physical comedy. Also, a really great commentary on the detective novel, just, like, as a whole, as a thing. Um, that whole, like where, you know, everybody's, like, all in the same place, but nobody can find each other in the dark, that whole kind of thing. Anyway, I appreciated all those kind of moments, and that, and their whole short little conversation about the notebook, and do you write everything in the notebook? Well, not everything. Only what's important, but how do you know what's important? That that was really funny, too. Um, I appreciated those moments where they drew it out just a little further than it needed to go, but it made it, it even funnier, like, not tedious, like, it made it even funnier.
2: It, I I agree. Um, I I think... The, sh- the movie did a really good job of showing and not telling with some of their, the jokes that they make kind of about mysteries itself. But The, the Notebook is, is pretty pretty dang classic um, as, as, just as a joke. So, on to jokes. Well, sort of. Lightning, this lightning round I want to do is what our favorite Agatha Christie Easter eggs are. In the movie, and I'm going to go with mine because it is a joke, and I'm the host, so I'm going to go with mine. And mine is the the sort of offhand comment when going to visit, going to look at the scene, the, uh, someone's hotel room. Uh, stalker and are with a, a concierge with a French accent, and 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 Stalker asks just offhanded, "Oh, so sir, where, what part of France are you from?" And he says, "Belgium."
1: I loved that.
2: Yeah, it's so good. Oh, it was so subtle, and it didn't need to be there, but the fact that it was was like, oh, okay, yep. I I trust your bona fides here. Thank you, Katie. What about you?
0: I I have I have a bunch, <laughs> <laughs> I, and I don't want to steal Alexis. Alexis, you go next, and then I'll go. How about that?
1: It's it's go ahead. You're fine. <laughs>
0: All right, um, so I, I like, two or three minutes in, I was already wigging out because of the skis, um, because <laughs> he gets beat with the skis. Because in Citiford mystery, which I just read, skis play a very important part in that story. Um, so the skis got me. When she said, "Do you think they were all in on it together?" Yeah, that's murder right on the earth. That universe. was great. Um, what, wait, wait, let's see. The what part of France are you from? That one. Um. There's a, when she's trying to find him, when he claims he's gone to the dentist, but really he's in the pub, and she sees a bunch of dentists, one of the dentists is called Norman Gale, so that's from Death in the Air, or sometimes called Death in the Clouds, um, and there's a character in that novel, Norman Gale, who's a dentist, <laughs> um, and uh, spoiler alert, he's totally the villain, um, so that one's kind of fun, um, there was one more, well, and this is not something I noticed, and this is not a Christie reference, but they, when they say he was, a, he was a real hound inspector, that's like a reference back to the Stoppard play, um, I think, were those the ones I wrote down? What Did did you, what, did you see any ones, Alexis, that I missed?
1: So I don't know if these count. Um, one is I was curious about the serial killer so w- while they're investigating the murder, the police's other resources are being devoted towards trying to catch a serial killer um, and that's kind of why uh, Stoppard ends up with this rookie police officer helping him on the investigation. Um, and I was curious as to whether that was also a real um, serial killer, which it was. Um, so throughout the film, they're investigating the Rillington place murders. Um, the actual killer who was being investigated, the killer's name is John Christie. <laughs> I don't think he's any relation, but it's totally spelled the same. Um, now, in reality, the rights to the Mousetrap are sold in '56, and Christie is apprehended and executed for murder in '53, so they wouldn't have been at the same time. Um, so that was, but that was really interesting that that was a real murder, and there was a film adaptation of that serial murder situation and the serial killer was played by Richard Attenborough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> I yeah. So, uh, so I thought that was really, really fun. And then also the only other thing I wanted to say is um, I want to now rewatch The African Queen, which I love and have watched many times, and I'm so happy that the film showed love for The African Queen because it is so good, and no one ever talks about it, I feel like. And so the fact that they mentioned it multiple times throughout the film, felt like a personal little, like, we we know, it is great, and I was like, it is great, and now I want to watch it again, and everyone who hasn't seen it should watch it, watch it, and if you have seen it, you should watch it again, because it is tremendous, and we should do an episode about it sometime, not necessarily the mystery gang, because it's not a mystery, but it is awesome, and I love it, and it's so great, and my husband would disagree, but he's wrong.
0: <laughs> oh, guys, I just remembered one more, and this is not a reference to any of the Christie books, but I was screaming, so... Whenever they go to, I think it's, I think there's, it's, it's, it's when they're supposed to be at the screenwriter's apartment, and he's got this beautiful, moody, you know, like whatever, awesome-looking apartment. Um, and there's multiple scenes in there. And then they come out of the apartment building, and they get in the car, and they actually show you for the first time the front of this building. And it's the building that they use for all the exterior shots. It's the building that um, that David Suchet's Poirot lives in. <gasps> That's the building. I was screaming. I was a lot. I was like, ah! <laughs> I should we <be laughs> go back? Like get a still shot when they come out. It's a very distinctive building in London that has this curve to the front of it. It's incredibly symmetrical. Poirot would love it if he was a real person. Um, but it's it's that's where David Suchet's Poirot is supposed to live. It's that same building, um, and I about lost my mind. So that's that's like a great Christie adaptation reference. And I don't. I'm assuming they did that on purpose, unless they just you know somebody had seen. I think that building's been in other films because it's just a beautiful kind of Art Deco looking um, building. But that was one of the other ones that I wrote down that I noticed and I was so excited (laughs) to see it in there
2: I think we're going to say canon
0: it was intentional
1: it had to be there's no way
0: because, I mean, he's, you know, he's the guy... They, they've done every single Poirot story with him, right? Like, he's the OG. So it makes perfect sense that they would want to make that reference, too. But it's but it also is funny, because, again, it's it's very meta, and it's, like, at it three removes, because it's not a reference to any of her books, right? It's it's an adaptation... It's, it's referencing an adaptation when it is itself, like, a pastiche or a parody or whatever. It's just... It's layers on layers of kind of meta stuff.
2: That's awesome. Okay, so we... We've kind of gotten there a little bit with Alexis, but let's round everything out with our passing on. So Alexis, I'm going to start with you. So is there anything besides the African Queen that you want our listeners to pay attention to? Uh, Yes,
1: and I'm terrible at narrowing it down to one. So um, one, we've mentioned, I think, before on a previous episode, but I checked and it wasn't in passing on, so I don't feel bad about doing it uh, again. Another mention. Um, Gosford Park. Um, Speaking of sort of plucky, not really plucky, but female detectives, unconventional female detectives, um, Gosford Park is uh, a fantastic film and a great examination of upstairs, downstairs dynamics and... um, yeah, it's just it's just really I would love for us to do it as the mystery gang because it's a fantastic film, and not just because Clive Owen is oh
2: my God Clive super Owen. high in that movie.
1: <laughs> I'm just saying he's a very attractive man in that film. Um, <laughs> and um, and it's a lot of, you know, butlers and maids and what kind of uh, what does their existence look like apart from their um uh, their employment, and um, Maggie Smith is in it, and, um, I mean, there's just ever, everybody is in it. Uh, it's great. It's wonderful. So that is, watch that. And then, uh, I can't believe we haven't mentioned this already, but Only Murders in the Building, um, which is a very, like, a, an American adaptation of Christie in that, even though it takes place in New York City, you have uh, Steve Martin and Martin Short and uh, Selena Gomez solving mysteries in their apartment building that functions as a small town. Um, and so you have, you even have in some cases that denouement in a room where everyone is gathered and they're going to talk about who did it. And there's just a lot of, of connective tissue between, I think Agatha Christie and, um, and only murders. And the third season is supposed to come out next month, I believe. So, uh, in, in August. So, um, if you haven't been watching that one, highly recommend it. It's a delight. And, um, yeah, you should watch it.
2: Season three is supposed to feature Meryl Streep.
1: I mean they're just they're doing really good work over there is what I'm saying.
0: Yeah. So Katie, do you have any future episodes for us? No, not necessarily future episodes, but I do have a few things to recommend. Um, I the first thing I'm gonna recommend because I'll recommend this to anyone anytime for the rest of my life, is the T V series Psych. Um, from USA Network, which has been off the air for a while now, um, because it has a very similarly absurdist vibe um, at times, and it's a mystery show, and it's a comedy, um, but also because, like this movie, um, they the guys who made, that, who made that show would frequently do pastiches of things that they loved. Like, there's an entire, listeners, if you've never seen Psych, there's an entire episode that's Twin Peaks take off. It's called Dual Spires. Um, it's a classic it's a classic um there's there's like a two-part story um that is very noir called Santa Barbara Town like they they have all there's a lot of different kind of pastiche episodes or parody episodes that they'll do of different genres and different there's one that's um like super Bollywood um and and the, the theme song is different um and it's you know like so that that's a fun show for um kind of watching both a parody of the idea of the civilian detective and also uh, just a parody of lots of other things. Psych is always fun. Um, the other thing is I mentioned way, way back at the beginning of the episode that this movie, um, See How They Run, reminded me of a different movie and that, that is not a mystery, and that is Peyton Reed's Down With Love which we've mentioned before, I think, in at least one podcast, um, which, because Down With Love, like, this movie is a combo pastiche and parody, but in that case, it is a pastiche slash parody of, like, 60s Doors Rock Cousin rom-coms. Um, And so it's kind of a love letter to those types of films, but it also is kind of relentlessly mocking them um, and has a twist ending. Um, So if you kind of enjoy this kind of meta exploration of something that's beloved, and more old-timey, um, and you're not exclusively devoted to mystery, and you'd be willing to check out something else, definitely give it a watch. Peyton Reads Down With Love is hilarious, very well cast, really funny, um, and and very pretty, just like those movies were in the 60s. So.
2: Those are fabulous recommendations. Um, thank you, and I think it's a crime that we haven't
0: done Psych. Have we, we – have, you haven't done a Psych episode, have We've we? have never t- – I, I, it's like it's too much, right? Too personal? Too, long, too close well, to home? No, well, no, actually, I didn't mean emotionally. I, I, don't, I, <laughs> I, I just love it. But it's it's like it's an entire TV series. You know what I mean? I feel like if we were ever going to talk about that, we'd have to pick something. Like, let's talk about the pilot, right? I mean, okay, or, hold on a you know. second. This
2: this The podcast is covered Supernatural.
0: Yeah, okay. I mean – I, well, I'm happy to put together a psych episode anytime, so just, if we ever run out of other mystery gang ideas, we'll fall back <laughs> on the psych, and I'll put us together a psych episode, because it's a great show.
2: Well, any of these would be fabulous episodes um, for the podcast. Uh, my recommendation for listeners, I don't know if we've done, I, I feel like we talked about doing, and then... If it happened in the past, it happened in the past and is no longer in my brain. So I don't even know if I've recommended this film before. I probably have. If I've talked to you in person, I have. Um, It's Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. I love these films that he's doing. They are his very intentional love letter to uh, Agatha Christie-style murder mysteries. But with a distinctly modern flair, a little bit different from his take um, on the murder mystery, one of his early cla- uh, oh, Stone classic, um, *Brick*, which was sort of uh, a oh my gosh, that's such mark. a good movie. Oh, set in a high school. Uh, it's oh, it's so such a good, good movie. It's such a good movie. Yeah. The *Knives Out* movies. He he hates that they're called the *Knives* a *Knives Out* mystery because it was never meant to be the phrase, but Glass Onion is the most recent one with just a stunning Janelle Monet in it. Um, but it, it hits those sort of emotional beats that I think, see how, how they run was getting and plays with tone in a similar way and balances in balances farce with, uh, with like actual gravity pretty dang well and it's it's just so much fun and I, I, I'm considering somehow paying for Netflix I, ever since they changed their policy and now I can't use a friend's login anymore because I don't live with that friend um, I'm like alright well I guess I can never watch another Knives Out mystery it's a very sad state in my life but I also don't want to have to pay money for things
0: We just got locked out today. Like we'd been we've been we've been sharing with my sister for ages and then we got a new fire stick and when we uploaded it we told it to keep all of you know, oh, keep our apps and keep our parental controls and all that and it did. But when we tried to get back into Netflix it was wanting us to put in our phone number and we're like, We're done. I just to start paying, so we just, for now, we're going to see. If our kids don't complain, we may not get it back. But um, I was so relieved to be able to, to like, rent this movie on Prime. Because um, I know it's HBO, it's not Netflix anyway. But it's always nice when something's from a different streaming service, if I'm able to, if we can rent it on Prime, because we have Prime. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, uh, we'll have to see. I, I, I don't know, the five-year-old's favorite show is on Netflix, so we're going to see how long she notices that we're not not watching that. We're going to see if we can make do with PBS Kids.
2: So. Well, Godspeed and God bless, because... Oof! take a five-year-old's favorite TV show away and it's about as bad as when you take a 43-year-old Laurie's favorite TV show away. Right, I know. Yeah. Well, I've had a fabulous time with you ladies tonight and I hope our listeners have as well. I want to thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, any mysteries out there that we might have missed, Or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle, at network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Katie Grubbs, and Alexis Neal, I'm Laurie Norris. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss a classic of Russian literature, Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.